0: So, hello everyone and welcome to episode 15 of the Zoology Ramblings podcast. Um, with me, Roby and Emma.
1: Hello. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and fantastically, we are once again in the same place. But I know, we're it not... feels so
1: weird. <laughs> yeah, but we're
0: not in Wales this time. We're actually at our university house. So it's weird not having two different recordings. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite
1: a nice setup. It's not the lag that you get on Zoom. It's like, hello, are
0: you there? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. It's an actual conversation this time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we've been back at uni um, for a couple of months now. Yeah. Um, getting panicking. back into the swing of things. Yeah. Panicking.
0: Panicking. Yeah. Should we talk um, about our dissertations? Because obviously we are doing zoology dissertations. What What is your dissertation on?
1: It's really, really cool. Um, I haven't started it yet, but it's on mitochondrial DNA of ticks. Um, Which are on Galapagos giant tortoises. Such
0: a parasite.
1: (laughs) I'm such a parasite nerd. (laughs) I'm really, really excited Um, And it's gonna be kind of mapping the evolutionary history of these ticks in relation to the tortoises in relation to The history of the Galapagos Islands. I love
0: it. I love it. So is that what's that paleo paleo biogeography? Yeah. Oh So many joined up words. And what you're doing, a really, really awesome
1: one as well.
0: I am doing, um, I'm looking at the expanding and contracting ranges of otters and invasive mink in Yorkshire River system catchments. So I'm mainly doing um, database work, so pulling out sightings, and I'm going to use some software to try and map how the sightings are changing over time. And I'm going to support this with about four maybe five sites where i'm camera trapping which is all we spend our time yeah, doing
1: yeah i feel like that's the... <laughs> camera trapping has become our life yes <laughs>
0: um there's a couple of main questions i'm trying to look at so basically otters are really increasing in the uk invasive mink are thought to be decreasing but no one knows if it's the otters making them decrease or maybe the otters are just making them change their behavior, so we're just not looking for them in the right places. And it's all kind of very. <laughs> no one knows what's happening with these mustelids, and as you all know, Emma and I love a mustelid. Do love Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: and you could cross another if you get to see mink on camera traps. That you'd yes. be able to cross one off.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I which went for a, cool. I went for a recce on one of the sites and I found mink scat. <gasps> so hopefully there uh, we'll, I will get some mink.
1: It'd be exciting to start that because it has been weird. I don't know if you guys have found this. I assume several of you study zoology, <laughs> listening to this. Um, but all of our courses, uh, our classes, are online, um, which is very very strange. Mm. So actually going out doing some camera trapping, I think we'll feel a bit more like us again. Yeah. Do you know,
0: and not to do a shameless brand plug, but when, we, when I went out to do a recce of this site, I put on, Emma and I always wear these kind of like hopper shirts, because they're just fantastic. They're mosquito proof, they're sun cream proof. And I put it on, I put my walking boots on. I went out into the kind of miserable wet. And I thought, <laughs> yes, fantastic. This is what I've missed. Oh,
1: and should we tell them we did something very exciting yesterday didn't we? Yes
0: we did, yeah. What did we do?
1: Um, we went to Donna Nook to see the grey seals because um, they come onto the dunes, uh, That will be the pregnant females and then they give birth um, until their pups are weaned and then they mate again and go back to the sea. That was um, That was
0: really good, we saw some big male seals Trying to chase the, plo- the, the, the lady seals.
1: They I need a verb. The like poofing, like when you know flopping. Flopping. When were they good, just yeah. go up and down. Um, um
0: if anyone's in the UK, now is a really good time to see grey seals coming out to go pupping. If you're in the north of the UK, Donanook in Lincolnshire, we highly recommend. There was probably about maybe 30 seals there now, but not really many babies visible.
1: Yeah, I mean it was still impressive, but it's yeah. really, really bleak and sleety oh, and God, cold. So cold. And the pups. <laughs> very rightly so were sheltering on the other side of the dune so we couldn't see them so yes. we're gonna go <laughs> back
0: <laughs> um, but yeah that's just a bit of a life update from us we're now gonna start with the the meat of the podcast as ever we've got an animal of the week section a news section and a conservation section um do we want to start with news section or do we want to start with animal of the week i can't remember which way around we do it um
1: i think last time we did news news first, first. okay but what's your news my news. I thought I'd do something that's very, very topical and current. <laughs> it's happening right now, um, and that's about COP twenty six.
0: Ooh, lovely! Um, Some more climate anxiety fuel. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: very much suffer from eco anxiety, exactly. but hey, we're doing our best to no, deal with we it. We move. <laughs> um, so, for those of you, I assume you guys listening to this podcast have heard of COP twenty um, six. But just to give you an overview, it stands for the Conference of Parties. And basically it's an annual UN climate change conference where you've got leaders that come together from all around the world to kind of review the steps that they're taking to tackle the climate emergency and hopefully take these promises and turn them into action because some some nice hardcore action would be really, really nice. Um, And basically the goal of this conference, so it started on the 31st of October and it runs until the 12th of November. Um, and it's up in Glasgow and so the goal at the end of this is to kind of come out with a set of frameworks or texts outlining like the next steps moving forwards and they, the idea is that they're really um, like achievable and they're quite mm. specific so that countries can achieve it all around the world. Um, so the 26th part of COP means that it's the 26th conference um and so this year the hosts are the uk as well as partners italy
0: i didn't know italy were partnering i kind of not heard anything about that i hadn't until like (laughs) the
1: logo came up and it was like cup with partners italy um and i saw biden was in italy recently um doing something with that um and so just to put this in a bit of context why it's important um is our planet basically has been warming um, for since (laughs) kind of mainly the industrial revolution is kind of when we saw Mm -hmm. huge rise in emissions from fossil fuels so that's coal, oil natural gas um, and it's because of anthropogenic activities that we are seeing global warming as well as global climate change so that's they're different so global climate change would be more frequent more severe weather events so floods, storms, droughts and then global warming is the increase in temperature
0: and climate change also comes into just general shifting of climatic patterns so it'll affect it'll affect the kind of the global Coriolis effect it affects the wind patterns and so you know even if it's not extreme weather events they'll just be okay so you know the latitudinal boundaries of each heat type are just moving further northward the poles that cold air at the poles is shrinking yada 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 um, I mean I assume everyone here knows about climate change <laughs>
1: yeah and if you want more information in like in-depth information about climate change we recorded a two-part um, podcast series on mm-hmm. climate change on the biome um, podcast so that was in a lot of depth so I mean apologies they're very long um, <laughs> <laughs> but, <have> to be. <laughs> we felt with climate change we really needed to do it justice yeah um, so yeah. feel free to check that out I'll put the link in the description um, if you guys want more information about climate change and kind of what you can do as an individual, because it can feel quite overwhelming and a bit scary when you hear about these yeah. this big planetary crisis yeah. that we are currently in. Do
0: you know what? That has been interesting. I don't usually get massive climate or ecological anxiety just because that's not really the way my brain works. That's not how I kind of process stress. But actually, since COP has been happening and all of these headlines have just been blasting away about all this stuff to do with COP it's been hit me really badly Mm. I've just been sitting here just like oh well the planet's on fire we're all gonna die um which is certainly one way of looking at it but I mean some of the results so far have been promising I think
1: yeah there definitely has been some promising steps so I think one that was on the 1st of November so really recently was that a hundred global leaders committed to halt deforestation by 2030 okay um and that included Bolsonaro Really? Um, yes, really. Which it it is promising that he has signed it and pledged yeah. to do that. Yeah. But he also committed to halting deforestation by twenty thirty and then slashed the budget for environmental um enforcement.
0: Ah. Oh, I see. Okay. It's so one of those promises. Yeah. I feel like
1: <laughs> that's it's very, very positive and I think I've seen a lot of kind of forestry groups and sort of people around the world in like rainforest, things like that saying so yeah. like this is a really, really positive step that you've got a hundred global leaders committing to this. Right. But they were saying, actually, how are they going to stick to this? Like, are there any repercussions if they don't? So we we need that a little bit more detail, I think, to know that there will be consequences. Because currently, especially the global rich West, can get away with absolutely anything with no consequences. And like, oh, but we'll meet it by 2050. We, (laughs) we, We don't have time with climate change. We really, really don't.
0: And it seems to be a bit of a summit of of good ish. Like them, a load of countries. I just saw pledged to end coal in the next. Is it the next decade or something, or the next twenty years? Yeah. Um, which is really really good, and it's really really good to see President Biden in the U.S. pushing for this, which is something we haven't seen. Mm-hmm, his, you know, in the last under the last president, but then you actually look at who signed it, and the U.S.A., India, China, and Russia. And Australia have all just not signed the yeah. coal pledge, and so it's like, well, it's great that America's back in the ball game when it comes to climate change, but if they're not signing the coal pledge, it yeah. kind of is. It kind of implies a bit of hot air going around.
1: I think so. Pun yeah, and there's actually yes, I like that because <laughs> um, there's actually a really funny. You can look it up. It's like these people. Um, I think it might be an extinction rebellion. They dressed up as the politicians um <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> were there. see the photo <laughs> Yeah, it's like Biden <laughs> holding a thing that says "hot air." <laughs> Um, and it says COP26 hot air Band, which was quite amusing. Um, but I guess just another positive before we go on to why maybe COP isn't doing enough. Right. Um, so if you look at them, you can see the map. Yeah, I've there. got the map. So that is countries with net zero emission commitments.
0: Is that the red ones or the blue ones? The red ones. The red ones.
1: So more countries now, more than ever, have net zero emission targets, okay. which is very positive um but these have to be backed up by policies if they're actually going to be turned into action right right. and obviously on there you can see russia is not on there australia is not on there
0: but australia's the one i'm always really disappointed in yeah Um, i am especially because you know the hole in the ozone layer that really badly affected them they're getting really badly hit with wildfires um the temperature is going up across the continent the great Barrier reef is being bleached out of existence and yet they're still they're clearly very aware of it and actually if you look at the individual conservation organizations they're throwing loads of money into it but it seems like the government the people at the top are just not willing
1: why do you think there's that resistance because they are going to be affected Co- quite badly in coal, climate change. coal and
0: gas is is really big money for Australia it's the cornerstone coal gas and steel is kind of the cornerstone of the American in, uh, Australian industrial economy mm. and coal really did build that part of Australia so it's really hard for them to give that up. And also mining is really, really, really big. And I guess, unlike with fossil fuels, there hasn't really been a look at how mining can be done sustainably. Um, but yeah, Australia is the one you pick out of there. India and Russia also haven't signed. Neither has Saudi Arabia, which also is not surprising, because they're doing its all- built A lot oil of that in the
1: Middle East there is not. Yeah yeah big oil industries yeah. so.
0: there but you know there are some good there are some positive ones there's South Africa and South Africa's really big into coal and oil as well
1: a lot of Africa like yeah. most of sub-Saharan Africa on there
0: and again that's probably good because we know that the people who have committed least, the least to this are being the most affected so it's very good that they've got those commitments but it's they, they probably were quite keen on them because presumably they're getting whacked by it a yep. lot harder than the rest of us
1: but I, it is positive seeing the U.S. on there. I have to say, and it, China, it's, it's nice seeing that these big, kind yeah. of more Westernized countries, yeah. are starting to maybe take some action. Yeah. Um, but maybe just to flip it on its heads a little <laughs> bit, because yes. um, want to give you the other side. Some people are saying that COP is not going far enough. Yes. So these conferences have been happening since 1995. And sort of every year they make these big promises and they say things are gonna change and then nothing actually happens. Yeah. And so Greta Thunberg, the um, Swedish climate activist, love her, Um, she is in Glasgow at the moment and she was speaking to protesters, saying that the politicians are just pretending to take our future seriously. Right. So she's been attending a lot of the cop talks and she says it's a very similar feel to all the other ones. She doesn't feel like right. enough is happening. And yeah. that things will actually, actually change. Yeah. Um, because if we go back to 2015, that was the Paris Agreement, where it was a big milestone. You mm-hmm. had a lot of countries saying that they're really going to try to keep global temperatures below a 1.5 degree rise. Um, and it, it, people felt very positive after that, I think. But yeah. how much can we actually say has been done since then?
0: Ish. Ish. yeah i feel exactly like ish just comes ish. out of this a lot yeah I mean there's a lot of talking and there's a lot of positive talking but we really you know the jury is still very much out I don't think we can say we obviously can't say that this is a solution to the crisis yet yeah we've got to see if if, if these leaders actually pull it out of the pull it out of the bag
1: but yeah there was also what's her name it's bird girl UK she's very oh, um yeah. Interested in birding in the UK and getting people from di- different disciplines involved and she also did post on Instagram yesterday saying She's been disappointed right. by being a cop So I think what we're getting fed through the press is very much look how positive. This is our leaders are coming together Yeah, but then you've got people our age the activists on the ground who are saying actually Is it enough? Yeah, Um. because so I think this was as a result of the Paris agreement, but it was the rich countries promised to contribute $100 billion each year by 2020 mm-hmm. to help developing nations cut their emissions and manage the impact because they'll be the ones affected yep. most. But it was found that they provided less than $80 billion of that promise. Yes. Oh, yeah. So there's promises there, but current projections estimate that we're on track for a 27 Degree rise,
0: which is terrifying.
1: Anything close, even 1.5, we're we're gonna have catastrophic impacts. Close to three, that is entire ecosystem collapse. That's most coastal cities underwater. It's gonna affect us all. And if our politicians don't wake up now, yeah, what does their house have to be flooded (laughs) for them to care?
0: I mean, maybe. I mean, this was a really (laughs) cynical take on it. I mean, someone I can't remember who it was. I was reading and they said, "Yeah, nothing's going to happen until we start losing cities, and the waters like visibly start, and you know the Maldives is underwater, and then then people will wake up." But that's um, too late. But that is too late. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes think the same thing about the global biodiversity loss. You know, nothing will happen until one of the tigers goes or one of the rhinos goes, which is a really horrible and really sad thing to do. And i you know, I'd cry if any of those things happened. But actually, I've spoken to quite a few people who are like, "Yeah, until you get that." what you wake up in the morning and there aren't any more rhinos until that happens nothing is gonna change um, which is a really cynical <laughs> way to do it so fingers-crossed cop does pull at least something out of the bag
1: I hope so and just to give you end on a little bit of optimism if you do want to follow along with with cop obviously there's so many different streaming sites where you can watch all of yeah. this um, But we really good one is the cop 26 science pavilion mm-hmm. section So it's being hosted by the Met Office Mm -hmm. um, and all you have to do is subscribe to their YouTube channel um, and they are just kind of sticking up to date with the science and how all these really cool things happening um, to tackle climate change. Um, My dad's company is actually going to talk, which is really exciting. Um, So his his colleague's talk is going to be called because farmers feed us all using climate information for a resilient food system. Mm, so it's about Nice. about that. So yeah, I'll yeah. be listening to that. Um but there's loads the whole event plan is on there. I'll put the description Fantastic. Um, if you guys want to check that out. Um but yeah, that was a bit of a slightly long news section for cop, <laughs> but I feel like really need to talk about it because I think it's been affecting us definitely yeah. and kind yeah. of being quite anxious about the state of the planet. Yeah. Um,
0: So shall I do my news section?
1: Yes, what is your news? Well,
0: as a little bit of a counter, my news section is actually quite short and actually quite good news.
1: That's good. think we like some good good good. news.
0: (laughs) So it's a piece of marine news, and it comes from the deep, deep ocean and a place called the Southwest Indian Ridge, which is this oceanic ridge in the deep crust between Africa and Antarctica. So bang out in the middle of nowhere. Um, And nine new species... Well, nine new specimens have been collected... Which are creating a new species of shark, which has been discovered and described. Oh, are these
1: like the weird deep sharks? These are the weird deep sharks. Yeah,
0: yeah. This is these these are the sharks which were made in you know God's deviant art stage, uh, where he just kind of made a load of stuff and then said no, I don't want anyone to ever see this. again. he dumped it in the middle of the ocean, um, and hoped that no one would ever see it. But too late, we have. Um, it has been described by Justin Cordova and David Ebert. Ebert, maybe Ebert.
1: Ebert. Ebert. Maybe.
0: Um, and it's a new species called Apristurus manochiriani. Apristurus manochiriani. Yeah, that's That works. <laughs> uh, and it has been found in this one specific location. And it is not a huge, sexy, deep sea apex predator. It is a small brown cat shark. <laughs> <laughs> it's still
1: cool if it's a new kind of deep yeah. deep shark.
0: And but and it's actually no real surprise that the new discovery is a cat shark. So cat sharks are the largest of all shark families. Can say contern- containing seventeen genera and one hundred and fifty species. Wow. And Eprostur- Eprosturus, the genus alone, has thirty-eight other cat sharks. In it. Wow,
1: that's a lot more species than I thought it would have. Yeah.
0: Basically, the deep sea is just filled with loads of kind of small The deep sea is catch up. I don't
1: know. It kind of terrifies me. All the <laughs> weird animals that you get there.
0: I feel like everything, you know, in the big ocean, you know, the dolphins and the whales. They're like, ah, oh, majestic. The water, the sea, and then the deep sea. You've just got the stuff which is like I haven't eaten in 30 years. I have oh, yeah. eyeballs on my eyeballs Not even <laughs> Death can kill me.
1: And like transparent <laughs> brains. I know. Oh. It's all
0: weird. Um, There is a sexy element to this cat shark. Aprosturus cat sharks are sometimes called ghost or demon cat sharks.
1: Oh, I like that.
0: And yeah, we basically know nothing about it. Um, It's described as having a porcelain white body with a pink tint. And it's roughly 558 millimetres long for males and 495 for females. And that is the end of my news because that's all we know about it.
1: They're weird. There's a picture (laughs) of them and they kind of look... I don't know, the bottom one is really unnerving. I <laughs> know. <laughs>
0: um, so I'll put, I've put the, um, we'll put the link to the research so publication. So <laughs> So you guys can see this new cat shark. Um, but yeah, that is my news. A new shark, always nice to see a new shark, especially when a lot of the news about sharks these days is bad, you know, we were fitting them. Finning them away, but these is a new one, which will be very, very interesting.
1: That is very positive. Yeah. Nice to have that after the climate change doom. Exactly. But <laughs> I,
0: I kind of feel this is the kind of new species where we'll see it once in the deep, deep ocean, and we're not gonna see it for another 52 years. Yeah. And it'll just be there again.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Pretty cool though.
0: So shall we do our animals of the week?
1: Yes, sounds good. We'll do animals of the week, and then we'll do a little interlude yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, So this actually Roby inspired my animal of the week because we were at the kitchen table as... No, we were in
0: the car. We were driving driving to see the seals. And Roby
1: mentioned this wonderfully named thing called the hog badger. Oh,
0: I love a hog badger.
1: (laughs) And try and picture it in your head before you look one up. It's what you imagine it to be. So it's like a cross between a wild boar and a badger. (laughs) So they kind of look like the European badgers that we are used to seeing. The ones that we put on camera traps. I'm going
0: to Google one now. Um, They do look weird.
1: They're really odd, aren't they? But they've got like a piggy snout.
0: Yeah. That is weird. It
1: it looks like a hybrid animal. Yeah. But that's also maybe my bias view because I'm used to sort of Eurasian badgers. Yeah. I mean, it's kind Um, of got like
0: bear claws.
1: Yeah. They're really, really long claws. Mm. Um... But I looked up a picture of one and I was like, absolutely have to talk about <laughs> the hog badger because they're so cool. Um, so they are omnivorous mustelids. Um love a mustelids. Which are, We love a mustelid, <laughs> woo! Um, and they're native to South and to Southeast Asia. And they're actually the second largest mustelid behind the wolverine. Ooh, um, the second well,
0: largest terrestrial mustelid. I've terrestrial, heard. yes, right.
1: terrestrial. Um, And that should be said, that's for the greater hog badger. Right. Um, So there are actually three species in this genus Mm. Arctonix.
0: Lovely name.
1: Which is cool. And it was thought to only have one species before, Mm -hmm. but there was a study in 2008 that actually confirmed there were three different species. Lovely. Um, so the three different ones that you have is the northern hog badger, the greater hog badger, and the Sumatran hog badger. Lovely. Um, so the big one is the greater the hog great badger. The greater one.
0: That that does make sense. Yeah. And it's that
1: one actually that's listed as vulnerable ah. by the IUCN, but the other two are least concern okay. um, and kind of main threat. So your usual, it's people, it's poaching, <laughs> it's habitat loss, it's deforestation, it's fragmentation. You've heard it from us before. Um, but they mainly live in kind of tropical evergreen forests um, lots of cool camera trap footage of mm-hmm. them kind of snuffling around <laughs> so imagine it's kind of like wild boar behaviour where they'll be digging um, looking for things like worms, insects tubers right. Um but then with a badger because they also dig these really cool tunnels. I was gonna
0: say, do they still dig? Do they still dig um, the tunnels like, yes. like our badgers?
1: Yes, oh. they do. Okay. Um, just with like bigger claws and lots of snuffling. <laughs> um. <laughs> so they are found in Bangladesh, Cambodia, India, Laos, Myanmar, Vietnam, Thailand, China, and Malaysia. Cool. So that part of the world, and they're just bit of a fact file about them they're ground dwelling they're quite shy they're solitary um, and they're active during the day and at night and they just Mm. spend most of their time snuffling so they're just snufflers really snufflers epic hog badgers (laughs) look like a hybrid they snuffle (laughs) go like a Go, go look up a picture of one because they're really cool lovely so yeah <laughs> that is that's is my animal of the week what is your rovi
0: my animal of the week it's not really an animal so much as a genus uh, and they are the <laughs> I love um
1: them. we've talked so much we, about puttoos
0: but never on air so this is our first on-air puttoos <laughs> rant um so this one is a special shout out to our producer mike as many of you will know we also host a second podcast and kind of wildlife conservation awareness platform called the Biome Project and Mike, our producer, apparently loves Patoos. <laughs> so here we go. Some of you may have seen a vid- YouTube video of them, which went viral, of this like bird sitting on a fence with these big black eyes and this huge mouth, and it's just screaming at the camera. <laughs> so Google that. Um, I <laughs> yeah. think that's Is That's how you pronounce it, isn't it?
1: I would say Patoo. patoo
0: yeah. I'm just gonna go with Patoos. Apologies to any patoo specialists out there. If I'm massacring my name. <laughs> so, <laughs> Patoos are a group of birds in the order Caprimulgiformes. For those of you who are interested in a bit of taxonomy, um, Caprimulgiformes are a group of night flying birds. So you've got the Patoos, the Frogmouths, mouths, Frogmouths birds, are so
1: weird. Yeah,
0: Nightjars, that sort of stuff. Um, and they're all kind of weird, small, camouflaged night flyers who nobody really knows much about. Um, so they're in the family Nictibidae. <laughs>
1: That's
0: cool. Nictibidae. They're sometimes called pull me ones after their calls. Um, and there's seven species in the one genus. And they're a New oh. World species, uh, family, group, whatever you call them. So they come, they kind of go from Mexico all through Central America, a couple of Caribbean islands, and the kind of the fat chunk of South America. Yeah. Okay. Don't really go down into Argentina. Oh, um, my God. I've just scrolled through photos. The <laughs> <is> this. They're <laughs> so they look like fucking... Ooh, I can't swear.
1: We can on this one. Can we? I don't see why well, not. It's our enough. podcast. <laughs> yeah, they look like
0: fucking Satan. It's actually terrifying. Um,
1: that is like...
0: It's a devil a bird.
1: Demon. <laughs> I'm going to get nightmares <laughs> about that.
0: <laughs> if you Google a patoo, it is a night terror. Um, and there's almost no way to properly describe one. Um, <laughs> I think they look more like frogs than birds.
1: They have frog eyes. And I don't don't know about their mouth like that's just like oh.
0: they've they've been described as little more than a flying mouth and eyes and they've got these huge huge eyes bigger than night jars um and these eyes would be actually be very conspicuous to diurnal predators so they have slits in their eyelids that allow them to look out for predators whilst their eyes are closed which is quite cool
1: i wouldn't be able to do that
0: yeah be very fun <laughs> um and they basically just look like tree stumps. That's that's their whole thing. They just sit really conspicuously on these tree stumps, but they're so perfectly camouflaged They just look like a broken tree stump.
1: Unless they scream at you and-
0: Unless they scream at you, yeah, and summon Satan from the <laughs> hell. Um, but, and because you all have listened to me before, they're really really interesting because of their evolution and taxonomy. <laughs> So today they're a New World family, but fossils from the Eocene and the Ligocene in Europe suggest the family was once more widespread, and this is kind of where they start getting weird. So there's a fossil poutou from Germany's famous Messel deposits.
1: There's so much cool stuff there.
0: So much cool stuff, and it's called Paraprophica, and it's about 48 million years old.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: So it was closer in, in time to Tyrannosaurus than us, and it's almost identical to modern poutous. That's so very like
1: little changes then.
0: Very little changes. That's like finding a modern lion skeleton closer to Tyrannosaurus than us. 48 wow. million years old. And it gets weirder. So a 1996 study of the mitochondrial DNA found incredibly high levels of genetic divergence between the seven species, which suggests that the species themselves are very old. And in fact, the level of divergence is the highest within any genus of birds. Really? Yeah. These weird little tree stump frog devils. And actually, this level of divergence is much more comparable to the level of divergence between whole genera, or even families, of birds.
1: So lots of... so that, that would mean that they're very different then, from, like, within different species they've diverged a lot from each other? Yeah,
0: yeah. But they're basically indistinguishable. Each See, those of the seven species. Really, looked...
1: That really must be so hard to study. Yeah.
0: Each of the seven species looks almost exactly the same on the outside, but on the inside, this is the most genetically distinct group of birds on the planet.
1: I find that so fascinating because <laughs> obviously that's something that we wouldn't have known before kind of molecular and genetic exactly. advances in technology because we used to group animals completely differently when it was morphological. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that really awesome.
0: And actually, that, we 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 know that this was the case because actually we thought they were all like three species and then we started looking at the DNA and realised actually, even though they look identical, this species is about as different from that species as a parrot is from a toucan. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this means is there might be some cryptic species to be discovered. Ooh. Yeah, I love a cryptic species. <laughs> <laughs> so cryptic species are two or more species that are classified or hidden under a single name and it's typically when species... Can't be determined by outward appearance alone.
1: So that would mean you just need more genetic yeah. testing, then.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: need some Patu people to go out and. We do. Take Where are my Patu gen- homies
0: at? <laughs> 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 uh, we don't know much about Patu's. So in terms of behaviour, they're just they're nocturnal. Don't really fly during the day. Um, they're perch hunters, so they just like like a barn owl. Quite often they'll sit and wait on their perches and just kind of flap out to catch a passing insect. Um, they were initially thought to be beetle specialists, but they also take moths and grasshoppers and termites. And that's basically all we know about the Patoos.
1: See, I found that really cool. I love it when you don't know much. They're loads of like possible cryptic species yeah. and they're just really, really weird looking.
0: Well maybe that can be our thing. Maybe we can go out and study some Patoos in Central go America. Go then. I'd be well up for going
1: and studying some Patoos. That'd be really fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we graduate soon, so we could go (laughs) Go
0: off and look for some patoos. I'm down. (laughs) So, shall we have a little interlude here?
1: Yeah, sounds good. Um, You can go make a tea, (laughs) eat a crumpet, I don't know, (laughs) whatever you (laughs) want. Have some gin. Yeah, whatever you want to do. And we'll come back for the second part, which will be our conservation kind of story section. So, see you after the break. So, welcome back everyone. This is part two of episode 15 of Zoology Ramblings. Um, In the first part, we talked about our conservation news, we did an animal of the week, and in part two, we're going to talk about sort of wider conservation stories that are Mm -hmm. happening around the world. Um, so should I yeah. start yeah. with my conservation one so this was a very recent one I think it the article came out in Mongabay in November okay. so literally a couple of days ago um, and it was saying that one of the world's last two northern white rhinos has been withdrawn from the breeding oh. program um, so this is Najin Yeah. Um, so we've talked about them before but obviously you might not know them by name <laughs> Um, so the rhino that's been withdrawn is called Najin, and she's now 32 years old, right. and her daughter is Fatu. Yeah. And so these are the, the sole survivors of the subspecies of northern white rhinos. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were part of this program called BioRescue. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're still part of it, but um, what they were doing before was harvesting the eggs from mm-hmm. both Najin and, and Fatu. Um, and this was to be used to create these embryos, which are then going to be implanted into um, sort of surrogate southern white rhino species in Kenya. Yeah. Um, and then that the hope is that with those embryos, they could be brought to term by these surrogate rhinos and then taught kind of the social skills by Najin and Fatu. So it's still they have the subspecies specific yeah kind of behaviors, but they'd just be yeah kind of. R- Ray? Like, what's the word? Like,
0: uh, surrogated?
1: yeah sorry I mean, by I mean, another yeah. species i like that
0: and the reason this is because the last male sudan who you've actually called susan in our notes section which is <laughs> <quite laughs> funny um, the, la- the last male of the subspecies sudan not, not susan, susan. <laughs> sorry
1: um
0: has has died so we've only got these two females but they've still got his sperm frozen yes so that's why they're doing the whole embryo surrogacy and i think naijin and fatu can't have can't naturally carry babies is that right is that why they're doing surrogates yeah
1: for some reason I'm not sure why but neither of them can have been able to carry a calf to term right um, and basically they said the decision to withdraw Najin was quite difficult obviously when one individual is 50% of the population yeah you have to weigh up what's more important kind of the species or kind of the ethics of is it right to continue to take eggs right. from this individual and so, kind of, <clears throat> the, de- the decision was based on her age, health, and welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, so, she is 32. Um, and from the, the egg cells that they've taken from her, none of them have been fertilized successfully. And they've also shown that um, there's some small benign tumors mm-hmm. in her cervix and her uterus. And so, they thought it was the right decision right. Um, to withdraw her. Um, but she's,
0: she's still quite valuable, though.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Thought. So <clears throat> if these surrogate rhinos do manage to give birth to um, the the northern white rhino species, yeah. they will still act as kind of passing on social and cultural knowledge. Right. And they're also continuing to take sort of tissue samples for stem cell research. Yeah,
0: because um, there not there a really... Um, is that pluripotency where you can grow uh, reproductive cells from body cells.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We did did that in a module in
0: first year and I remember being like, oh, that's really cool, but I couldn't for the life of you explain it now. (laughs) Yeah. It's
1: very, very cutting edge and kind of still in the early stages of being able to basically undifferentiate cells Mm. and turn them back into something that you could turn into gametes. I knew you were paying more um, attention in this model than <laughs> I was. <laughs> but, I mean, really, really interesting that they can do this because they do have the... We've talked about the um, the frozen zoo as yes. well before on the yeah. buying project. So these are all these DNA and kind of cell samples that are just frozen yeah. in this underground frozen zoo. I think it's <laughs> San, San Diego, isn't it? The frozen zoo? Uh, or...
0: San Diego is the aquarium... And I maybe would the frozen need zoos. to check,
1: I'm not yeah. sure. Or we'll go look it up. Um, you can look up where the frozen zoo is, we did talk about <laughs> it before. Um, but that's kind of the hope, that they have this reservoir of DNA. If these species do go extinct, that there might be a way to kind of bring them back. Um,
0: We've also spoken, if you'd like to check out you check out one of our um, Which Species Should We Save episodes on the bio podcast as well, because we go into a bit more detail on is it worth saving the northern white rhino. Um, and, you know, what's in a species, what's in a subspecies. But it's very interesting news and I'm, I'm glad that she's still got a role because actually she'll be quite important as a kind of matriarch figure.
1: And I quite like as well that they, the fact that they have withdrawn her means that they are looking at the individual. Because mm-hmm. often I feel like with these projects you can get very carried away with yes, we're going to save the species and mm-hmm. this is all that matters. Um, so kind of in a similar way with the Vaquitas when that failed and they decided no, enough is enough. Yeah this isn't going to work yeah i kind of respect that that they're taking her kind of health and ethics into consideration
0: yeah
1: Yeah. so yeah it's just interesting that um there's now only technically one individual of this subspecies being used for kind of future generations and conservation um i just thought it was an interesting bit of news because we have talked about this before um but kind of giving you an update of what's happening with that
0: Although, technically, you could say that from even beyond the grave, Sudan is still making embryos, and I respect that as well. Um, not Susan. Not Susan. <laughs> a rhino called Susan. I would think that would be a great name for a rhino. If I ever get to name a rhino, I'm going to call it Susan. Do it. <laughs> I shall.
1: What is your conservation news, Roby?
0: So, my conservation news is also big African, East African megafauna, uh, but it is moving south a little bit to Mozambique. Uh, Where a new study published in Science magazine has suggested that ivory poaching has led to the evolution of tuskless elephants.
1: I remember we talked about this. This was really interesting.
0: Yeah. So, this is something we've talked about a lot uh, the impacts of hunting on big megafauna, especially with regards to trophy hunting, canned hunting, poaching. Um, And for me, the most interesting possible angle on this story is the implications for trophy hunting. And the story comes, the study was authored by a guy with a fantastic name, co authors, I should say, Robert
1: Pringle. (laughs) I love that. Who
0: is a professor at the University of Princeton. Um, So, we've spoken quite a lot on the very controversial topic of trophy hunting over on our other podcast, The Biome Project. Um, So, for more information on this, to understand our particular stances and our personal views on it, and to kind of contextualize the study I'm going to talk about, I highly recommend you check out that episode on YouTube or Spotify. So, this study took place in Gorongosa National Park in southern Mozambique, which has been on my bucket list for a very long time. Um, Gorongosa was hailed as the kind of Serengeti or Masai Mara of Mozambique, with some of the largest wildlife populations in East Africa.
1: Let's go. We need to go. There's
0: <laughs> these it, beautiful palm forests in Gorongosa as well, which you don't really see because it's quite close to the coast, and you've just got elephants walking among the palm trees and knocking them down, and it's hilarious. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, But the Mozambique Civil War in the 90s and early 2000s led to the massive depopulation of both the park's people and wildlife, and the elephants were decimated because their ivory was used to fund the war. And 90% of Mozambique's elephants were killed.
1: Wow, that's
0: shocking how many that is. Now when we're talking about tusklessness, all male African elephants have tusks, but whether a female has tusks or not is controlled by genetics. Uh, In much the same way that our hair or eye colour is coded for by specific genes, so is tusklessness. And it's thought that tusklessness in a healthy population is a relatively rare genetic condition. So before the Mozambique Civil War, only about 18.5% of female elephants in Gorongosa were naturally tuskless. Since the Civil War, that has risen to 33% since 1999, which is when the Civil War kind of, you know, wrapped up and uh, more elephants were being born.
1: So to me, that would almost suggest that's kind of natural selection in action. If it's kind of the increase in frequency of a specific yeah. trait that is then beneficial. Is that, is that the case?
0: I would probably argue it's artificial selection. Because tuskless elephants had less value to the hunters than tuskers. So they were largely ignored while the tuskers were slaughtered. So this meant the frequency of the tusker gene for females decreased in the population, whilst the tuskless gene increased, as the tuskless ones were the only ones to be alive to reproduce. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that's artificial selection, yes. in the same way we would you know, selectively breed dogs. Um, and it's now been figured out that this tuskless gene is linked to the sex of the elephant. So gene sequencing recently confirmed this, and it's a mutation on the X chromosome. So that is actually fatal to male embryos, which is why all male elephants have tusks.
1: So it's only something that could be seen in females. You could never get.
0: It's only could, it's could, only ever expressed in females. Okay. With males, it's it kills the embryo and they're never born.
1: So then, with males, could you end up potentially with shorter tusks over time rather than tusklessness? Potentially. So if the bigger bigger ones were poached. Yeah. But that you wouldn't be in the same way with females, where they wouldn't have.
0: No tusks. Potentially. I, this study didn't mention the male tusklessness, but because it proved that t- tusklessness is fatal to male embryos, and we know the tuskless gene for mothers is increasing, for female mothers, this could have really interesting long-term effects. So because this tuskless gene is fatal, if the tuskless gene increases, it could lead to fewer male elephants being born.
1: Mm. And
0: because it takes two to tango, uh, this <laughs> could then use, like, create a very long-term decrease in elephant births overall.
1: I hadn't thought about that because yeah. when I initially saw this, I was like, "Wow, this could really be very positive to yeah. an elephant population if they're still able to survive and mm. not being kind of poached for their ivory." But yeah, if that is a fatal mm-hmm. gene, you're gonna have a lot of female elephants and, and then and not
0: so many males. Yeah, but. There may be impacts on the wider landscape as well. Obviously, we've spoken a lot. We go on and on about how elephants ecosystem engineers, they create the savannah mosaic that they live in. And some studies, well, some observations, I don't know if it's published yet, suggest that tusked and tuskless elephants have different feeding and foraging habitats. So an increase in tuskless elephants may actually alter the ecosystem because they're less able to knock down trees, plow these great pathways through the savannah and that sort of thing. and so, actually, Professor Pringle suggests that this trait is reversible over time and is expected to decrease as the population recovers. But this is interesting to me because it kind of puts a thorn in the side of the argument that sustainable trophy hunting for elephants wouldn't have a long-term effect on the species. Mm. Um, That's
1: a re- It's a really interesting one. And I think, as with conservation, so many conservation issues, it's not a simple one. Yeah. Because, obviously at first glance I would have said yes this is positive because mm. less poaching but then if that's completely altering the population dynamics then yeah. it's like well if they'd just been left alone yeah. then <laughs> they could have increased naturally and yeah. you wouldn't have this
0: and you know you should check out our Biome project uh, our Biome podcast episode on trophy hunting because we really um, in detail lay out the pros and cons but a big pro of it is that if done sustainably it wouldn't impact the elephants and it would finance their conservation. But actually this might imply, because presumably trophy hunters will still only want to shoot elephants with tusks. Yeah. This would imply that if you're only shooting the tuskers, you're only gonna have tuskless females and those tuskless females would have less of chance of birthing a male so yeah, actually the frequency we, will
1: decrease we touched on that with other species as well mm. kind of with trophy hunting it's Rhino usually as well. the, the biggest male mm-hmm. um with the most distinctive characteristic yeah so actually you might end up with a population of kind of smaller weaker individuals yeah. if you're weaning out these like the really big ones and elephants i think definitely you're seeing that yeah you're ta- they're taking out the big bulls with the, the the biggest tusks
0: yeah so that's really interesting um professor pringle suggests that actually the elephant population in gorongosa is slowly recovering there's around 700 there now which is good but yeah it was it was less kind of a specific case study and more of a kind of we need to take this into account when we then think about sustainable hunting yeah and trophy hunting in particular um but yeah that was my conservation section i saw it and immediately thought oh that's relevant <laughs> we should talk about that um but yeah that is the end of this episode 15 of zoology ramblings do have you got anything else
1: no, I think that's it. We'll continue to keep you guys posted with conservation-y stuff. Um, conservation stuff. <laughs> very much aware that this has moved away <laughs> from a weekly podcast, and we're sorry about that. Um, but we do have other... Yes. We're a bit overwhelmed with university, um, university <laughs> stuff right now. Um, but as always, you can check out what we're doing on our Instagram. So I'm Emma Hodson Wildlife. Robie is Robie Watkinson Wildlife. Yeah. And then also on the over on the Biome Project um there's also some educational documentaries going out and some exciting what have we got coming out with the biome one
0: we've got the first episode of season three of the pine podcast where we interviewed a whale and dolphin conservationist up in the isle of mull I have got the we beavers got one the Beavers. We? yeah we've got some beavers coming out um, <laughs> <laughs> we
1: love a beaver we love a beaver um
0: <laughs> And There's a little film coming in the works as well about shifting baseline syndrome, which you may have also heard us talk about.
1: And I think our producers um, are just starting to edit the Isle of Mull mm, stuff. Yeah. So that was quite a while ago now. We went mm. in...
0: July,
1: I want to say. Yeah, ago? I can't remember. No, we went, went in June. No, we went in June, yeah. <laughs> um, in June. But yeah, they're starting to work on that, which I'm yeah. so excited to very, see. because very excited. Some of the footage we got from that was ah just <laughs> <laughs> incredible
0: no no spoilers otters um, <laughs> anyway we shall love you and leave you so until the next time see you later
1: bye see you bye. next time <laughs>